Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 13, Fashioned by Fickle Gods. I'm Scatty, we have Matt and Brooke with us as hey. always. Hello! And uh, if you are a Triskaidekaphobe, imagine that I just said it's episode 14 and we'll just move forward from there. Uh, we are <laughs> tackling today John 8, Danny 7, Tyrion 8, Catelyn 10, and then a second dose of Danny with Danny 8. That's chapter 60 to 64, according to a wiki of Ice and Fire. Just a quick reminder, as we do every week, we are spoiler-free until the end of the podcast for Davos After Dark. And uh, when that segment comes on that's spoilerific, we'll warn you. Uh, and uh, if you want to contact us to provide feedback about this or any other episode, or ask us questions, or just uh, generally give us a thumbs up or thumbs down, uh, just uh, reach out to us through many places, davosfingers.com. Uh, email at we are davosfingers at gmail.com, Twitter, Twitter at davosfingers, or find us on Facebook and you can contact us there. Uh, as always, nice to hear from uh, the Song of Ice and Fire community and, and interact with you guys. We should set up a P.O. box so people can write us letters if they want to. Real letters. Yeah. yeah. Just to have that option. Just so that we can. We've got everything else spiel. now. Yeah. yeah yes. Right. But, it, but letters have to be made of vellum and written with quill and ink. And that's sealed with um, with the yeah. stamp stuff. Delivered by Raven. So yeah, I was gonna say we gotta we gotta train some ravens to deliver yeah. and hire a maester to receive the ravens. Have, have I ever? I know this is a departure, but have I ever given my favorite uh, Mystery Science Theater three thousand quote on this cast? No, but I think you're gonna. I'm gonna. <laughs> In Mystery Science Theater 3000, one of the episodes, uh, they're, they're talking about some carrier pigeons, and they say, No matter where you release these pigeons, they will always return to Ithaca. And one of the little robots says, What if you release them in Ithaca? <laughs> and I, I just love it. Such a scad it's a thing. Rare, it's a rare breed that appreciates Mystery Science Theater. Oh, and man, I love it. you're of that breed. <laughs> yeah. I am totally of that breed. That probably could have been predicted. Anyway, uh, last bit of uh, last bit of housekeeping before we jump in. Uh, we have created a survey for uh, for our listeners. Um, the main reason we've created the survey is because if you follow us on Twitter or Facebook, you may have seen that Eowyn, my wife, has uh, constructed and built some T-shirts uh, over the holidays as a Christmas gift to me, and we have a bunch of extra ones. And uh, we want to ship them out to our faithful followers just as a thank you for being awesome. Uh, but to do that, of course, we need, uh, we need information from you guys to, to ship them out. So we just put a, little fun que- a few fun questions uh, on the survey also so that we can uh, pick some winners and, and get some shirts out there. So we'll, uh, we'll post all the information on DavosFingers.com about how you can fill that survey out. And uh, we'll let it run for a couple weeks or something. And then we'll take care of the winners and, and do all that stuff. So... If you're interested uh, in a T-shirt with our logo and and uh, stuff on it, we'll uh, look for, look for that survey. I'm wearing the T-shirt right now, mine, and it feels like a part of me already. <laughs> like on Wayne's World, at first it's at restrictive, first it's restrictive, but, but after then a it becomes while... a part of you. <laughs> yeah. How do you like being in a real studio? Um, it's it's like a new pair of underwear, you know. At first, it's constrictive, but after a while, it becomes a part of you. <laughs> oh, Wayne's World. I'll take movies I didn't understand when I saw them in the theater at age 13 for 500, Alex. 
<laughs> I think I was about eight when I saw that movie for the first time, and I really didn't get it. Yeah, that math works out about right. <sighs> All right, well, let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, Matt, you want to get us started on uh, our John chapter today? You bet I do. Where we're going up north where the winter's cold And the icicles bloom like the bluest rose We haven't met his mom, but we love his wolf He's John Snow Because it's the follow-up of some real excitement from uh, last time we saw John So he and Lord Commander Mormont And of course Mormont's Raven Are sitting in Mormont's kind of makeshift quarters because his burned down and they are kind of debriefing about the everything that's transpired over the past little bit so um uh, we've got them chatting about john's messed up hand it got really burned up in the um as he was grabbing the flaming curtain and throwing it at othor as they were being othored and uh, his hand got pretty burnt that way um mormont's upset uh, and he's he's still kind of it seems like he's still a little rattled about um, uh, these dead creatures that came these whites uh, and so he's talking about how they haven't been able to find any more of them or anything like that uh, they also talk about a raven that had come um, it's not bearing news of the Starks much to John's chagrin he was hoping to hear notices about his family. Uh, but it's just talking about how Selmy managed to escape King's Landing. So we get that information a little bit secondhand, but we find out that Selmy did get out of King's Landing. Yay! And um, Mormont laments that, as he says, there's white shadows in the woods, undead stalking the halls, and a boy on the Iron Throne. Ever the optimist, old J.R. Mormont. Um, then, however, Mormont reveals his thank you gift to John for saving his life. And that thank you gift is a 500-year-old Valyrian steel family sword. Um, it, was, it, was, uh, it was kind of a family heirloom that passes on from heir to heir of House Mormont. And it had been given by Jor to Jorah Mormont when Jor took the black. However, when Jorah was exiled, uh, the sword was returned and given back to Jay or who'd held on to it uh, until now he felt like it would be a good gift to John. In fact, in the fire, the pommel was kind of burned off. And so Jay or had uh, the pommel remade in the shape of a wolf's head um, uh, referencing ghost. And I think Stark a little bit too. John has an inward struggle with receiving this gift. Being a bastard, he kind of feels like it's not his place to inherit something that generally goes to an heir um it struck a chord with him because as when he was younger he'd had dreams actually about one day inheriting ice which of course we saw make an appearance in um, brand's first chapter way back at the beginning of the book as it cut off somebody's head but he felt even guilty at even the thought of inheriting ice now because he's such a good brother and he felt bad at even the idea of stealing the birthright of one of his brothers And so, likewise, he feels a little bit bad receiving this sword. Mormon explained that, um, that, or he counsels John, rather. He kind of um, shoves off the notion that John shouldn't accept it, and he goes, just prove prove that you deserve it by your deeds um, rather than these words. So John does accept uh, the sword, which is named Long Claw. 
Mormont then informs John that our good friend and neighbor, Alasair Thorne, has been sent to King's Landing um, with the severed hand of Jafer Flowers to petition uh, the king for assistance up at the wall. They're hoping that by showing this severed hand that they can convince um, the kingdom or, or the, the government down in King's Landing that there really is a problem uh, up at the wall and they need reinforcements. John is, of course, a little bit pleased with this. And about that time, or of course, at the thought of not having Alistair Thorne around. And then uh, Mormont, after all this lovey-dovey stuff with John, he promptly sends him away to get his supper with some strict instructions on how that supper is to be prepared. I think kind of a reminder to John that, yes, I just gave you this really cool sword and everything, but you're still my steward, steward and you're still going to get me my food. So uh, as John leaves, he encountered his his friends outside of the Lord Commander's quarters where although he's gloomy and he's feeling a little down, still um, they're very excited and they'd heard rumors that John was getting this sword and everything. And so he shows them the sword and they're all excited and everything um, and on all this. And later he's summoned to kind of act three of this whole chapter, which is to go see Master Amon. When he gets there to see Master Amon up in the rookery, uh, Amon sets him to feeding the ravens. And as they work, Amon explains to John that the Night Watch has always preferred ravens to other birds because of their strength, intelligence, and a few more reasons. And he also explains, perhaps perceiving kind of John's inner struggle between Night Watch and family, that uh, love is the bane of honor and duty which the Night's Watch can't afford to compromise, and that's why they make the vows that they make. You know, complete commitment to the Watch is required in order to do their job effectively. And John, in kind of a little turd moment, tells Amon he could never understand what he's going through, and blah, 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 and you just kind of want to sing a dashboard confessional song to John at that point. So kiss me hard, cause this will be the last time that I let you um, Amon insists, however, that he does know what John is talking about and reveals that he is actually Amon Targaryen. <gasps> More about him in just a second. So he does know what John's going through. Uh, and then he ends the chapter by saying that John can make his own choice as to what he will do, but he li- must live with the consequences for the rest of his days, just as he, Ma- Maester Amon, had. And we end the chapter. Uh, so a big reveal there, right? We um, find out who Maester Aemon really is. Uh, I don't know. The first time I read the books, I, you know, no big deal, right? What did you guys think? Well, I didn't see it coming at all, but kind of a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> so a little bit of background on Aemon. Um, he was the third son of a king, King Makar, and Uh, Being the third son and very far down in the line of succession, his grandfather, when his grandfather was actually the king, sent Amon to the citadel to be trained to be a maester. And uh, so he was kind of taken out of the line of succession at that point. Uh, However, as time went on and Makar died, there actually arose kind of a dispute over who would be the next king. And the kingship was actually offered to Amon kind of quietly and uh, at this time, he was already a maester, and he actually refused to take the kingship and instead um, 
allowing his younger brother, the fourth son, to become the king. And then at that point, Amon, who claims that he did it to avoid um, any of his younger brother's enemy using him as a means to usurp the throne, um, Amon went to the north and took the black and joined the Night's Watch. So this was a, a guy who, who's had an interesting and storied past. Uh, and so he does indeed kind of what it's like to to kind of leave family behind and, and really move to the Night's Watch. Uh, what do you guys think? It, I kind of read the end. Sorry, Go ahead, I, have a, I have a question about the succession. I don't know if you got the family tree right there or whatever, but I, I thought Amon was even further removed than just being a third son. Wasn't Makar also like a second son? Yes. He's so he's so Makar like wasn't even son. supposed to inherit... Right, but yeah. his brother also died, mm-hmm. and so then Maker inherited. So when Maser Amon went to take the black, it wasn't just that he was third in line. He was like over one and then third in line. Assuming Maker's brother had children, Amon would have never even been in the picture. Yeah, a lot of them died. And then, well, and then some of um, uh, Amon's older siblings, he had two older brothers. Both of them had died, but they had had kids. Right, um, and that's and, who Amon. And they jumped those as well. Right. So yeah, he was. It was pretty rare that it even got down to him. Yeah. So. Sorry. Thanks for the clarification. Uh, so I I detected a little tinge of regret there, or perhaps the slightest hint of it. Did you guys pick up on that as well? That does Amon perhaps regret uh, not staying with his family and um, and joining the Night's Watch, taking the black. And what do you think of his commitment? Well, he does say to John that it hurts and that he's been tested multiple times in his life. So, yeah, I think he's being pretty blatant about his, well, yeah, maybe regret is too strong a word. But he's Mm. definitely thought about it. He's definitely had the same struggles that John has had, if not worse. Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to call it regret, but it's... uh... What might have been? Sure. I mean, I, I think about this all the time. I, I had an opportunity to play uh, scholarship soccer for a, a local college here uh, before I got fat. Instead, I went I went to uh, my alma mater, University of Arizona, where I proceeded to make great friends and have, you know, some of the times of my life. But I always will wonder, you know, what would have happened if I had done that instead? What would my life be like? And uh, I think it's the same thing. It's how, but but it's not it's not just personal for Amon. It's what would the mm-hmm. kingdom be like? Right. Yeah. And and so you know, it's a, could it's all of this stakes. have been avoided? Yeah. yeah. But I don't I don't I think regret is still too strong. But but yeah, I think he thinks about it. Sure. And and Brooks right on the nose. It's uh, the tests were painful, mm-hmm. very painful for him to make what he considers to be the right choice. Yeah, certainly there's got to be those thoughts of, you know, we could have avoided this whole Mad King Ares thing. We could have avoided thusly Robert's Rebellion. You know, it's... Uh, so, uh, interesting... Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I will still I'm moving on. Just uh, as we're reminiscing, I will remind our listeners what Brooke said to me last week when I challenged Caitlin's, uh, some of Caitlin's decisions. And she said, well, you never know what will happen. You know, hindsight mm-hmm. is 2020, and it could have been worse. True. Yeah. Those are certain. It could have been. Wor- it could have been worse. Yeah, something very terrible could yeah. have happened uh, with him as king. Yeah, but um, these are often the thoughts that go through people's heads, yes. as Absolutely. as you outlined, Scott. Uh, let's let's go back then to the beginning of the chapter uh, and cover some of the stuff that John and Mormont went through. I thought what? that. What's with that shame sword gift? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was 
was intense. You don't deserve this. And you better not yeah, fuck like... up again. But here, take it. And I don't want any thanks either. It's only been around for five centuries yeah. and belonged to my son who went and screwed up. And so yeah. I got it back again. Yeah. Go fetch my dinner before you realize how much I love you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Before I just kiss you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wonder if this was kind of a motivating factor. I think J.O.R., you know, obviously sees a lot of potential in John. Um, and this was kind of a way to remind him that, you know, you've, you've got a lot of potential and remember this. And, and that sword can almost be a physical reminder of the potential that John has. Yeah, it certainly and- solidifies Sam's theory that John is a steward to the Lord Commander because he's being prepped for future leadership and uh the sword is going to help with that leadership that's an interesting that's an interesting question uh do you think i mean it it kind of what you're saying kind of implies that that maybe dior well he says right there he had forgotten all about it so maybe my question's not a good one uh it said in the chapter that he had kind of forgotten it and they found it when they were sifting through the through the ashes from the fire uh, no, he didn't forget about it. You don't think so? I'm sure he I wanted he to. I, I think at that point it was probably a very painful reminder of, um, of his son. You think, so you th- we think he just lied to John? Yeah. Sure. All right. <laughs> so the first time. Uh, Certainly he's got John. other things on his mind. Um, a lot of the times, such as running a decrepit Night's Watch um, group, but well, all right, you guys took the bait then. So if you think he lied to him, then then my question is isn't isn't invalid. Do you think he always planned on giving it to him? Was just waiting for the right time? Like, I like as in, I'm going to make him a steward, and I'm going to give him this sword. Like he made that decision at the same time. Mm, I don't know about that. Yeah, seems. I just like when did he decide? After the moment's heroics. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm sure that the pieces just all came together and it became convenient and appropriate. But whatever the case, there was always some big grand gesture, or grand challenge, or opportunity yeah. in, in on John's horizon. Yep. I'm just saying it's not. I don't think it's not feasible that if if we agree that he's being gro- being groomed for command, and if we assume that Jor hasn't forgotten about the sword, maybe he was like, you know what, somebody's got to take this sword. Sure. I'm grooming this kid for command. I'm going to give him this someday. Maybe he actually did think about it. I don't know. He could have. Speculation. Yeah. Um, I, I, like, I liked what you said, though, Matt, and it reminded me about something, uh, about about the motivation factor, right? Hmm. Um, do you want to go more into that, or do you want me to just take it and run with it? Um, I had an example, but if you had one, I'd love to hear it. I have I have two. And the Pick first, your favorite. The first one is Aragorn mm-hmm. and Gandalf. Absolutely. And Gandalf seeing Aragorn's potential and what he's destined to do and uh, Aragorn not seizing that until he's it's put in his hands to lead. Right. Right. And depending on how you perceive that scene with the Balrog and whether Gandalf has purposefully done that and, and all of that. I, We've got our own theories regarding that, don't we? <laughs> but but it, it's the, the leadership is thrust upon Aragorn and he has to grow into that role and mm-hmm. uh, must start preparing rather than kind of being coddled and um, you know not forced to prepare anymore. Put aside the ranger. Become who you are born to be. And uh, yeah, you can prepare forever, right? Yeah. And and but but as a as a sorry, I'm going to give both examples as a as as an opposite example to that. 
I'm going to go for the trifecta in Battlestar Galactica. Oh. Yeah. Here uh, we go. Gaius uh, is some feel thrust into the uh, president position, right? As as a way to grow and be the leader of, of humankind that maybe he was destined to be, and he utterly fails. Mm-hmm. So it can go both ways. It's, it a, it's, it's, can. it's definitely a question of character, though, right? It is, yeah. Differences of integrity between Gaius from Battlestar Galactica and Aragorn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. What was your example, Matt? Oh, mine was much less um, severe or tragic or anything. It was just uh, a hockey example. So roll your eyes, Brooke. Get it out. Get it over with. I'm no, not just, I'm just you, you roll your eyes, Brooke, and Matt, you can <laughs> kiss your jersey. Generalization of not getting sports metaphors. Oh, right. <laughs> I didn't say you didn't. <laughs> I didn't say you didn't get them. You don't like them. Appreciate them. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate the Battlestar Galactica one, but please go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'll, I'll be quick then so we can move on. So I always, you know, well, not always, but, you know, as I was playing hockey growing up, I, I wanted to be that, that guy who could be an example to other people on the team. You know, I kind of, not that I craved leadership. I just wanted to be that type of good character type player. And, um, but I never thought of holding an actual leadership position on the team. And so I thought I'd just prepare to be kind of the best that I could. And then all of a sudden I, I got named the, the captain of the team. And so, um, and, and I felt completely unprepared, uh, for that responsibility. But boy, I tell you, every time I was out on the ice and I felt like, yelling at the referee or punching someone in the back of the head. Uh, I remembered that, that C on my Jersey, you know, um, that manifestation that I'm in kind of a leadership position. And sometimes it didn't stop me and sometimes it did. Um, but the point is that that's how I, that's kind of how I see long claw to John. It's one of those things where, you know, the next time John is faced with the, uh, opportunity of putting out Alistair Thorne's eye with a dagger, maybe he'll remember that sword that he's now got strapped to his back and the responsibility that that sword implies and and maybe think twice. And I think that might have been one of the motivations be- behind J.R. deciding to give it to him now. And Aragorn's comes with a sword too. That's a nice parallel. Uh, I wish would have come with a sword. Yeah, that would have been cool if you had a sword strapped to your back in hockey. Yeah. Or you could just take <laughs> your skate off and try to stab someone. <laughs> that is really powerful i like that coach metaphor and also listeners just a reminder matt is an awesome dad if you hadn't picked up on that yet oh jeez! <laughs> i can't wait to see what what symbol of responsibility you'll bestow upon your kids i'm really excited it's probably be gonna, star hope... wars hearing regardless of your life child <laughs> i'm gonna give them my star wars micro machine collection Oh, I think I think you should get a long claw replica created. Yeah, strap it to little Luke's <laughs> back. Excuse me, um, little Pippin's back. Luke's back. That's what we're calling him. The the one twin. He's Pippin. But. So uh, we are running out of time here, but before we move on, just to look back on one little thing you mentioned, Matt, how the Night's Watch is encouraged not to love. There's another good analogy there from another. <laughs> sci-fi genre <laughs> or, or, or sci-fi sci-fi franchise part of me do you mind mentioning that one as well i almost want you to <laughs> okay who can, who can do the best hayden christensen impression probably that's what this is from. <laughs> oh 
hold on. I just need to lose like a billion brain cells. <laughs> yeah. Which one of us is the worst actor? You do. Oh, <laughs> uh, he's not that bad. He's kinda... no, he's not. And and I'll get and maybe someday we can. Yeah, maybe someday we can go into my thoughts on George Lucas's script writing, but. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I'd like to see anybody do better. It would be a tough challenge. Anyways, whatever the case, uh, at one point he says to Amidala about being a Jedi, attachment is forbidden. Possession is forbidden. Compassion, which I would define as unconditional love, is essential to a Jedi's life. So you might say that we are encouraged to love. And uh, Matt, you brought this up because... The Night's Watch is not encouraged love. Do you want to wax about are, that? You got to say we are encouraged to love and then start dry heaving a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't look at me like that. Why not? It makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> well, that's what Natalie Portman's character was doing. <laughs> right. Um, no, she was just staring vacantly off onto the green screen. <laughs> she was, yeah. The, Did they deliver the, those lines together? I'm not even sure. Probably not. <clears throat> it was just a cardboard cutout of her <laughs> that he was looking at. Um, you know, the uh, that whole idea just kind of struck a chord with me, and and maybe in the end that is what the Night's Watch is doing. They're doing it out of an overall sense of love for the kingdom. Um, but they certainly aren't encouraged to have any of those types of commitment, rather like the Jedi. So that just made me think of that when I was reading what Amon had said. Little Hayden's voice just came ringing through my ears. And we've discussed this in the past. Being a Jedi, you, you give up all of those earthly pursuits, but it's for a greater cause and that, that compassionate love for, for all life. But on the Night's Watch... You really have nothing. It's just really cold out, and you got to keep moving to stay warm. Well, and uh, the Jedi are considered really special. The reason they're separated from everybody is because they are so special, and they have this special ability that no one else does. No, no, no. They just have a high midichlorian level. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> We're not talking about midichlorians. I'm just teasing, Scott. I'm sorry I told you to shut up. I feel bad. I'm sure I deserved it. <laughs> uh, but... On the other hand, the Night's Watch are the dregs of society, the yeah. ones that nobody wants. Some and... of them anyway, yeah. Sure. I'll just, right. uh, before we move on, Brooke, I do want to just mention one thing about, one more thing about the sword being given to John. I think it's kind of douchey and a little misogynistic that it wasn't given to Mage or Daisy. When Mage gave Jor the sword back, shouldn't he have just been like, this is a family sword, you keep it. That's all I'm saying. Come on, man. No, agreed. Totally. Yeah. In this world that they've created, do you think that even crossed his mind? I don't know. It, in this culture? Nope. I don't see why not. They're, he's he's allowing them to lead the family. Mm-hmm. Why, I don't... Eh. Allowing them, or there's no other choice? There we don't know. I've seen a family tree of the Mormonts. Maybe there, there's As some far other... as we know, there wasn't yeah. any other guys. Yeah. But that doesn't mean there never will. Keep the sword in the damn family. I don't disagree with you, brother. Uh, what other token of true love was he going to give John? Okay. <laughs> and then John being all angsty with it. But... <laughs> Why must you be such an angry young man? Six. When your future looks quite bright to me. <laughs> you 
got it all in the palm of your hand. But your hand's wet with sweat, and your head needs a rest. All right, I'm done. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, Scad? Danny? Yeah. Silver hair and purple eyes, always on the go. Kicking with the sun and stars, call him Cal Drogo. She knows just where she gotta go and won't be tarrying. Look how Westerosa comes, Daenerys Targaryen. We pick up with Danny, and uh, they've left via Stothrak. They and Danny is riding through the carnage of... A battle that has been completed that uh, Drogo and his compatriots have been successful in. The riders of a rival Kalasar uh, and the remaining uh, survivors of a town uh, are herded together. The the people are called the Lazarine, uh, also known as the Lamb Men to the to the uh, Dothraki. Uh, basically, after the battle's over, uh, the men of Drogo's Kalasar, in a brilliant reminder of how how brutal this life is after we've seen them kind of at peace in Vias Dothrak. They are killing for sport, raping whomever they choose, whoever just kind of, they kind of create a line and just rape and rape and rape if they want to. During this, uh, Danny's seeing all this and is just horrified. She sees Jorah and asks her the status of, of Drogo. Jorah informs her that Drogo took but a few scrapes and two, killed two Kalasar uh, leaders uh, in the process. Now the slaves uh, that they're taking after raping, uh, they're they're a bit of a bitter, bitter pill for Danny to swallow, but she's reminded that their price, uh, when they can sell them in the slave towns, could fetch all the boats they need as well as crews to sail them back to Westeros. So she's kind of having to accept the fact that they're taking all these slaves, and know that they're going to use them to her benefit of of hopefully taking back Westeros and avenging her family, but. Danny is clever, and she commands no rape, uh, claims the slaves for herself, and uh, she does this one time, and then seeing success, does so with all the potential rape victims that she can find, kind of walking through camp saying, and that one, and that one, and that one, and that one, I claim them all for myself. And uh, threatening anyone who disagrees, killing them if they disagree with her uh, her loyal retainers, um, until they finally come up... Uh, come up to uh, Drogo, uh, who's sitting in success. So um, I, it should be noted, one of the women that she saved uh, from being raped is a woman named Miri Mazdur, and she will be uh, a player later in the chapter. But they find Drogo. <clears throat> he sits wounded. Um, he's ordered the, the helpers away to go attend to other people that are wounded worse. And uh, Danny thinks this is ridiculous, orders them to help. In the middle of that, she has a, a nice line about the dragon feeding on horse and sheep alike. When when people challenge her authority, that she, she can, <laughs> the dragon will feed on Dothraki as well as lamb men if you challenge me. But uh, Drogo is wor- hurt worse than let on. Uh, with the healers attending others, Miri Mazdur agrees to help. Danny consents to let Miri Mazdur help after hearing that she has an extensive history of training, uh, medical training from, from various people, including uh, some maesters she's familiar with from, from Westeros. So eventually Cal Drogo makes the final call and agrees to let Mary pull the arrow out and sew up the wound. Uh, she does this and gives him specific instructions for care for these wounds. And Danny also then recruits Mary after the successful 
sewing up of the wound, to attend her during her child delivery that's coming up, as Mary also has experience uh, for that uh, for that experience. So suffice to say, the riders of the cow are very superstitious about Mary Mazdor's methods. They have their own ways to cure things uh, and heal up wounds, and they don't really trust her. Um, but uh, Danny has taken it upon herself to bring this woman who she saved into her trust circle and uh, and allow her to help with the delivery of her child as well as taking care of, of Drogo. And that's kind of how the chapter ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, really quick to trust this woman. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. can actually describe what a maester looks like? Well, you must have received training. Yeah. So, yeah, we just killed and raped all your people, but please help save the man who did all of that. Yeah. yeah. Hippocrates aside, this made me a little uncomfortable. Yeah, uh, Hippocrates, I don't think was around uh, in this world, but... Did I say Hippocrates? What's that? I did. Oh my gosh. No, Hippocrates is correct. I know. (laughs) Uh, I'm mispronouncing it a la Bill and Ted. Uh, I know. (laughs) Socrates. Socrates. Hey, we know that name. Yeah. Hey, look him up. Oh, it's under Socrates. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, I, I I agree. It's it's stunning to me uh, that that they've taken this woman into their trust so quickly um, for a group of people that is all about earning your respect in battle and through hardship. Uh, it's interesting that this trust is just given to her like this. I believe it's just a, a feeling I have that Danny is eager to show to everyone that her decision to save these women from rape and potentially murder has benefits that these people uh-huh. can help mm-hmm. and that by using Miri in this way, she's saying these people have value. See, look at this. And so she's, she's kind of eager to let that happen. And so it's, it's, while it's stunning to me that, that, that they do, it's, it's even more stunning that Drogo would, um, Drogo doesn't have that motivation to prove her decision was to prove his decision was was quality, and so it's just surprising to me that, that Drogo would would take these unsure methods in. I mean, it's kind of like somebody who their whole life has done homeopathy as the you know the way they've the way they've uh, you know healed themselves, and then without much introduction to you know, a doctor's scientific methods just says, yeah, sure. Come on, give me the pills, whatever the, you know, <laughs> sure. It's just kind of surprising. Completely agree. I feel like maybe he was trusting Danny a little yeah, too. That's a good sign. That's yeah. true. And, and we yeah. have seen that their relationship is, is deeper than you would expect almost. Yeah. Also, I'd say anyone with a gut wound, no matter how like bold and brave they are, it's also going to be like, just get me some help. Yeah, maybe he knew he was trying to put on that brave face, but inside he was like, "This really freaking hurts." Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'll maybe. take it. I didn't. I didn't say it during the summary, but the injury is that his nipple has been cut off and is right. hanging loose from his chest, and that is just awesome. <laughs> yeah, that probably had something to do with it. <laughs> My nipple is missing. I'm I only have two of those. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> Unless I'm Chandler Bing, I only have two. And so, uh, let's get it back. You have a third nipple? <laughs> you, B. 
bitch. <laughs> so, uh, it, it's it's interesting what Danny's done in this chapter. I, I was reading through it and, and just kind of like, what is this chapter really about? Is it just a catch-up chapter to see what they're doing? And I think it is a little bit. It's a, it's a plot chapter. You know, this is this is what's happening with these guys. But I think it's also showing a little bit of growth from Danny too. She's learning how to command her people in their environment, but but kind of weaving her own feelings and rules into it as well. She's she doesn't want the slavery, she doesn't want the rape, so she's using their laws to get to her ends, which is okay, fine, they're slaves, they're my slaves. Don't touch them. Right? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And this is not this is not the Dothraki way. They're used to claiming war prizes, right? And she has to deal with Drogo and convince him and tell him why. I don't know. What did you guys think about that? Yeah, it's maybe almost like a little bit of a backpedaling chapter too, because we've really gotten the good side of the Dothraki so far. It's been yes. fairly peaceful and celebratory with the wedding and and going um, to uh, the Sacred City and everything. You almost and start to like them. Yeah, and, and Danny has really embraced the culture and and made herself a part of it. But now it's like George is setting her up so that she's not just playing lip service to becoming Dothraki, but really investing in it. And to do so, she has to you know burn in the fire of what the Dothraki are all about, which is pillage and rape. Mm-hmm. And, well, uh, and-, and, and then to her credit, she she holds her own principles. Yeah, she does. Uh, this is, you know, in the back of her mind, she's she's thinking that the whole reason this is happening at this point, remember, Drogo's got pretty much a one-track mind at this point, which is get to Westeros. That's what he promised to Danny at the end of the last time we saw him. And this is his way to do that. He's going to go round up slaves the best way he knows how, which is this Dothraki way. And yeah, he's going to take his liberties uh, on him as he does so, um, but he's going to get them and he's going to sell them and he's going to buy boats and he's got to get there. And this is part of how that's happening. And it's quite shocking to Danny, even though that's what she wants to do. That's her end goal as well. Um, it's really cool that she recognizes, and we're going to see this more in the next chapter, that the Dothraki respect strength. That's the reason that Khal Drogo is the Khal is because he's more powerful than everyone else. And that's what they respect. And um, so she knows that she's got to exhibit that same strength if she's going to have that kind of respect. It doesn't help that her husband's or it does help that the that her husband is the Khal. Um, But she's got to exhibit some of that strength, too. The thing that worries me, though, out of all of this, and I do respect her, but the thing that worries me is she is going awfully hard against the Dothraki grain here. And um, although she's exhibiting some personal strength, she's also making some big-time enemies as well. Yeah. she's. I think she gets the impression she's changing culture. Yep. Um, And and they're like, Changes uh, don't uh. happen that fast. Nope. (laughs) We kind of talked about that when the Lannisters were seizing control. I think that was the last episode. Mm-hmm. Where they're just making all these changes and people are like, what the fuck are they doing? You know, it's not that easy to just change this kind of culture. And, you know, I'll use Matt's line, she's 14. You know, maybe <laughs> she doesn't really understand that it's not that easy, but... Sure, uh, she's in still her world, growing. she's seen results with, I'm the Khaleesi, and you'll hear about it from Drogo if you don't do it. Right, So she's yeah. using it. And she's not... And she recognizes, I think, that Drogo is is the guy who they respect because he's stronger than them all. And so she's not afraid to name drop. Yeah. So you said something interesting there, Matt, um, about 
Drogo's on a path. He knows he said he's going to go to Westeros, so he knows he needs to get slaves, go get ships, blah, 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 like a, a very stepped approach. I never thought when I read this chapter that this isn't par for the course for them, that, that this isn't just what they do regardless. I it think is. What you were implying that they're doing this so they can get slaves and sell them so that they can go to Westeros. I was of the impression they just this is just what they do. I think it's a bit of both, Scad. I think it is what they do, but now it's for the purpose of of getting somewhere. Okay. Um all right, shall we move on to Tyrion? Let's do it. Cripples and bastards and broken things, but the power of the mind can give you wings. Drinking and japing and yeah, ladies. Tyrion, Lannister, or Imp, if you please. Alright, so we enter with Tyrion arriving late for a multi-course dinner with his father and Tywin's chief knights. Uh, remember, they're on the warpath north on the King's Road. Uh, Tywin may be the worst father of the year, but the dude knows how to set a pre-Stark battle table. This one, including five roasted suckling pigs Ugh. with five different fruits stuffed in their mouths. Oh, I'm so I'm hungry right now. Yeah. I'm say. <laughs> um, Did you say suckling pigs? Yeah. That's what the book says. What is a suckling, suckling pig versus a regular pig? Anyway, move on. It's a I think small it's a young pig. pig. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like a full, like, sow on a spit. All right. Yeah. Sorry. Like Sorry for interrupting. T- suckling. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> gosh, we should probably just dedicate the entire conversation <laughs> to this debate. Uh, Tyrion is just tucking in when Tywin and Kevin Lannister, who is Tyrion's uncle and Tywin's whip, tell Tyrion that not only are Tyrion and and the clansmen in the vanguard, which is the first wave of soldiers in the battle, but that Tyrion doesn't even get to lead them. Sir Gregor Clegane, the mountain that rides, will be doing that. So this confirms what we discussed last episode, that Tywin is looking for a quick and clean way to rid himself of Tyrion. And worse than that, Tyrion knows it. So he ends up, spitting out his only bite of suckling pig and makes for his tent. (laughs) Good. (laughs) And makes for his tent among the clansmen camp where fortunately Braun has followed through on Tyrion's request for a pretty whore who knows what she's getting into. So enter Shay, who will apparently be more than just a sexual partner for Tyrion also being hired for wine pouring joke laughing, and monogamy. They do the deed, and Tyrion gets a lot of stress relief from the act, Shay being a true professional and faking her own pleasure well, or so Tyrion assumes. We learn it's been over a year since Tyrion last had sexual congress, and that was well before going to Winterfell at the beginning of the book. So the next morning, they're woken by the blast of war horns. Robb Stark's army has moved in the night and only a mile away. Jay and Tyrion's new squire, Podrick Payne, help buckle Tyrion into his armor and heave him onto his war horse. Tyrion has awesome custom armor back at Casserly Rock, but here he's had to make do with mismatching like bits and pieces, including a ridiculous helm with a foot-long spike out of the top of it. And by ridiculous, I mean awesome. <laughs> <In comparison>. <laughs> <laughs> you imagine? It would actually put him up to, like, typical men height. 
In comparison, it's like a little rhino out there. It's awesome. <laughs> yes. It's like nearly one fourth his height. <laughs> yeah, it really yeah. is. Yeah. So in comparison, Tywin looks tight as shit in gold and red enameled armor. Um, and I don't think I need to recite the entire ensemble, but page long description certainly highlights Tywin's ego and also his disinterest in making sure Tyrion is safely and beautifully arrayed as well. So Gregor Clegane commands Tyrion to hold the river on the left with his clansmen, and as they assemble, him and Bronn both realize that Tywin has fully screwed the vanguard, because they have no pikes, they have too few bowmen, and the mountain that rage rides is in charge. It being too late and too high octane to question it, the battle begins. So Tyrion actually like holds his own uh, during this whole battle. Um, I, I guess he's a quick learner and his experience uh, uh, through the Vale really helped him because he's chopping down Northerners and he's almost making us readers cheer for the Lannister side. His mm-hmm. crowning achievement in this battle is killing one Northerner knight's horse with the spike out of the top of his helm. Like, it's through the horse's chest. Also, there is a gratuitous amount of animal violence in this chapter, which I did not enjoy, but I understand is, is you know, what early war was about, which is unfortunate. Yeah. That's the way it goes, which is disgusting and why. Humans Sometimes are animals, I hate, I hate humans. Just hate them. Humans Anyways. are animals. Yeah, and I'm okay with them dying in war. But not the horses! Not the horses. Okay. Anyways, um... The Lannisters actually win this battle, thanks to the vanguard, but about half of the clansmen are dead. And later, when Tyrion reports to his father, Tywin is very blasé about his plan, which actually included Tyrion and his untested savages out there as bait to lure Robb Stark's army into the trap of Tywin's mountain knights. But the Stark boy proved to be more cautious than Tywin expected, and he also hadn't expected the phrase to be part of the Northern Army. So he was kind of blindsided in two respects there. Despite all this, Tywin's clansmen, or Tyrion's clansmen, had held the left side of the battle, and Tywin is remarkably ungrateful for it, and also remarkably unconcerned Tyrion being injured. Um, however, uh, Tyrion gets some measure of satisfaction action when we find out that it wasn't actually Rob Stark's army who they had just met in battle that morning, but only half of it led by Ruse Bolton who had got away and Rob Stark had crossed at the Twins and was heading for River Run. So he had hoodwinked Tywin completely. And uh, that's the end of the chapter. Yeah, so kind of crazy. Tyrion in the battle, doing well even in his shitty armor. Oh, so proud of the little guy. Yeah. yeah, cutting people up, stabbing horses with his head. Yeah, even though we and can we collectively agree that the North are the good guys? I that's what that's what bothered me a little bit as I was reading this chapter is I didn't want Tyrion to die, but the side that was trying to kill him, I wanted to win. So uh, also the well played, Germ. Enthusiastic and creative. You're kind of rooting for them too, little underdogs. Yeah, yeah, but they, they had the mountain the on their side, so he had to root against them. And he was influential in the battle, too. One of the parts that they describe is how he crashed through that line of pikemen and just kind of totally destroyed it, allowing the clansmen to come through also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
maybe another mistake by Tywin in, in letting the mountain be the command because he actually was big enough and strong enough to take that thing down. Yeah, he wanted that side to kind of fold so that Kevin Lannister could come in and kind of take the guys out. Yeah. Um, and that didn't happen that way because Gregor kind of led the charge and rallied the troops and yeah. they did a good job. So <laughs> Yeah, he hoped that by the left, by, by Tywin's left collapsing, Rob and Rob's army would see it and just kind of move into that area to try to flank them. And so Tywin was prepared for that. It was actually, it's similar if you've seen the movie Braveheart. Uh, the uh, one of the battles in that uh, my Scottish accent is terrible but I'll give it a try William <laughs> Wallace uh, is instructing his horsemen to leave and they say no we're not we can't split our forces and he says do it I'm not the English so you do it we must not divide our forces do it I'll let the English see you do it and he <laughs> that's pretty good that was just delightful so the idea, of course, is that the army will think they're fleeing, send everyone in to mop up, and then they'll come in and flank them. That's that's actually almost exactly Tywin's plan, except instead of informing Tyrion and his team <laughs> to do this, he's just hoping they get massacred and planning on it. And well, yeah, so, and if, if if they come in and they fill that space on the left, they've got nothing but the river behind, behind them, them. That, yep, or to exactly. the side of them, depending on which way they're facing. Yep. And so they can crush them up against that and... and really hem them and, in. Yeah. Yeah. So so Tywin gets a win, and he says this kind of at the end of the chapter. He gets a win, and he's happy about it, but it's not the win he was looking for. And then sure. the raw, the news Brooke's referring to about Rob actually not even being there is, oh, God, did I even really win? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that your record squatch? Scratch? That was, that was me, like, with a frustrating grumble. Yeah. Oh. Didn't work out that great, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was surprised just on the battle again. I was, and I, I brought this up with uh, with our friend uh, Brendan B. Fish uh, from uh, Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire. I was just surprised that Roos, leading Rob's army, steals the night march to get there as quickly as he can, but then stops a mile away instead of continuing on to try to annihilate them while they're sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, Isn't of... that? kind of a typical move though so that you can pick the ground like you have the high ground and you know they're down and by the river and yes but they did if he had stayed on the high ground yeah but then he sends his army forward and loses the high ground and that's and that's and that's what uh what jeff what what brendan b fish said uh you know is if he had stayed on the high ground that would have made sense it's a pretty kind of kind of poor battle commanding from roos really and on that note, thanks to Brendan again. He provided us uh, kind of proactively with some literature that he'd written and that he'd gathered regarding this battle and the one we're going to talk about in the next chapter. And it ended up being uh, extremely insightful. So yep. thanks again. He's a big supporter of our podcast, and we appreciate the guy. So, so now what we have is Tywin with uh, the remnants of Roos's army in front of him, uh, the knowledge that... Rob has gone to River Run to his to his to the east of him, uh, and he mentioned in the last chapter some skirmishes behind him from uh, the Kingsmen that Stark uh, had sent out, read, led by mm-hmm. Beric Dondarrion and Thoris Amir. So he's kind of got three people on three different sides of him, kind of 
in his way and uh, kind of not, not a great situation for him, actually. Yeah, because if he leaves where he is right now, that could potentially open up the way for Roos Bolton's men to come into the Westerlands from that direction. Yeah. Um, so he's he's kind of stuck. Yeah, a little bit. And I will say, too, I know we've been throwing out a lot of references to other podcasts and literature and stuff. Uh, if you have any interest in Beric Dondarrion and that whole group, uh, spoilers beware, but uh, the uh, Radio Westeros has a great episode uh, up on them. It was their most recent episode uh, detailing their movement and kind of how how they uh, how they behave and conduct themselves, if you're interested in all that stuff. Indeed, we'll tweet, we'll tweet that out. Yeah. yeah, you really only hear about them third person throughout yeah. the book. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Um, just before we move on, Matt, <laughs> in previous discussion, you mentioned a possible word for this podcast. Yeah. Get now. Oh, yeah. Yes. So this, we need to make, I need to write a, a jingle, a little song for the word of the podcast. This is our third <laughs> podcast in a row that we've had a word. Here, I'll, I'll make one right now. <laughs> Go. Word of the day! Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Wonderful. Um, okay. Uh, today's word of the day is shuddy. Shuddy. Uh, shuddy is a buddy that not only gratifies you sexually, but also gets you drinks, laughs at your jokes, helps you get your armor on, and snuggles. So it's like Shay. But a buddy, so it's a shuddy. So I'm sure we've we've <laughs> all known or come in contact with a shuddy before, and uh, I, I hope it was a good experience. My armor on—that's always been something I did myself. But other than that, yes. <laughs> all right, that's um, Catelyn, please. The words will cut you like Valyrian steel through a hand. She can't love Jon Snow And she's sure to let you know Where she stands A devoted mother Who married the brother Of a dead fiancé She's vengeful and hateful Loving and faithful She's Catelyn Catelyn Star Yes, okay, so uh, We're going from one battle to another here so we open on Catelyn. The sun is setting. Catelyn finds herself in the woods where she's protected by a guard of 30 men. So kind of a cool uh, opening as we find out that she's being protected. And why, we wonder. We find out she'd originally only wanted 10, but Rob wanted 50. So they met in the middle at 30. And of course, neither of them were very happy with that. We find out that she's waiting for a coming attack. So we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But as she's waiting, uh, she recalls how she's kind of used to waiting for the men in her life, whether that was her father, Hoster, as he was gone away doing his stuff, um, Brandon uh, Stark, who she was engaged to before his untimely death, her husband, Eddard, and now she finds herself waiting for her son, Rob. And of course, she remembers when Rob was born, and she has this moment where she remembers holding him and taking care of him, and you know how quickly he came along. We find out that after their wedding, Eddard was only around for like a couple weeks before he ran off to war. And uh, in that amount of time, she managed to get pregnant and, and have Rob. And then now she's seeing him, you know, lead this army and actually doing a, a fairly good job at, at being a leader and inspiring his troops. 
Then we find out a little bit more about the details and why she's in waiting and why she's surrounded by a guard. The As the um, cavalry led by Rob marched south from the twins, uh, they came closer and closer to River Run and, of course, where the Lannister uh, forces were encamped, led by Jamie. Uh, as they marched, they were joined by additional forces, not only the Freys, who they'd gotten at the Twins, but also others like the Malisters. And now they're preparing to engage Jamie. Uh, so Jamie, just so we know, has as he's laid siege upon River Run, we know that Jamie's won decisive victories and has pretty much taken over the Riverlands. Uh, and now he's got um, River Run under siege so he's got him surrounded the only problem with river run is it's essentially an island it's it's surrounded on like three sides by water uh and so he's kind of had to divide his forces into three camps um around river run just to be able to to guard it and continue the siege so they're trying to think of the best way to exploit that and to maybe exploit Jamie's personality a little bit in order to engage and capture him so the Blackfish counsels Rob, and, and the Blackfish is turning out to be a very astute counselor to Rob and uh, kind of a godsend. But um, what he says is that Jamie's essentially going to be bored out of his mind um, in a siege-type situation. That's not his way of doing things. He wants to be out fighting. And so they concoct this little plan, and their plan is to send in you know, a couple hundred guys, a couple hundred of Rob's guys with um, uh, River Run banners, like they're tollies, uh, in close to Jamie's camp, almost like they're a raiding party. They're going to come and raid and then run away. So, uh, and then they would just book it out of there. So they do just that. Rob sends in a force of a couple hundred flying River Run colors. They go in close enough for Jamie to see. Then they turn around and book it. And true to form, Jamie, bored out of his mind, grabs a whole troop of guys and follows them. Now these guys, uh, Rob's men, retreat into the Whispering Wood, into kind of a narrow valley type area. And, of course, Jamie is following, just hungry for some action. Little does Jamie know, however, that he is walking into a trap. And on three sides, there are Rob Stark and his men, and they are waiting in ambush. They do end up ambushing Jamie and his men. Uh, they win a decisive victory. They take out a ton of Lannisters and take a ton uh, captive, including Jamie. They do manage to take Jamie um, captive. Not without casualty, however. We realize that, or we find out that Rob's honor guard is particularly decimated by Jamie. Jamie, once he realized that the situation was hopeless, true to Jamie's form, decided he was just going to try to cut off the head of the snake and went after Rob. And in the process, he killed a number of Rob's honor guard, including both of Rickard Karstark's sons. So remember that um, one of Rob's uh, most high-ranking bannermen has now lost both of his kids, and that really weighs heavily on Rob that they died protecting him. <clears throat> Despite all this, like I said, the battle's a resounding victory for Rob, and he's taken a number of captives, including some very high-ranking bannermen. But uh, not to be overconfident, Kat, who remains remarkably gloomy through this whole affair, uh, she reminds Rob that they still have a siege to break at River Run. But they do have a very high-ranking captive now in the Kingslayer. 
So a fun chapter. I really liked this one um, because we're seeing the battle through almost a, a third eye view. Um, we're not seeing it from Rob's perspective, nor are we seeing it from Jamie's perspective. We're seeing it from Catelyn's perspective. And she's seeing it from a view that she can't see very good. So she's hearing a lot of the sounds and she's catching glimpses of things here and there. I thought it was really clever by George because it really kind of sparks your imagination. And I thought that was really a fun way to go about it. But well, she can she can only kind of hear things, and she's filled with her normal venom for everything. She hates <laughs> Theon, she hates all bastards, apple pie, pizza, and she even hates Olaf's warm hugs. She won't even <laughs> let them celebrate a little bit after they win. Hey, did you forget there's still River Run? Come on, woman, celebrate celebrate a little bit, right? <laughs> She's got she's got shit to do. We discussed last last podcast. She's got a husband captive yeah, and true. kids alone up north. But, Let's but get the, this uh, river run captured and get out of here, guys. But that's but that's a really good that's a really good segue into she should be the happiest of all about this battle. She now has Jamie, who, if anyone on the Lannister side, is worth a good old trade for good old Ned. It's Jamie. But, she should be ecstatic, shouldn't she? You think she'd be a little, at least optimistic at this point, but I think she's at the point where she's like, "I'm not gonna rest until I'm hugging my hubby." You yeah. know? Yeah. Also, she's probably pretty savvy about how uh, slippery the Lannisters can be, and 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 wouldn't, especially since she's already captured one of them and lost them. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, that's what's Good going point. through her head. She's like, "Ooh, oh, wonderful Jamie, point." Of course, Brooke. he'll get away, so that doesn't matter. <laughs> wonderful point. Uh, and she like, probably which also relative feels like. Can I take Jamie to to screw this up? <laughs> yeah, she's not counting those eggs till the omelet is in her stomach. Yeah, I wonder if she also felt like she had to be rather severe just to kind of make sure she was reining Rob in, um, and Theon, just to make sure that he didn't get too overconfident. Yeah, and Theon because she knows that Rob has this kind of certain admiration for Theon, and um, he's being she a needs... douchebag. So. She needs to kind of be like that opposite end of the spectrum for Rob, just to remind him, you know, you're a leader. You got to see this thing through. Chill out a little. She's in her element for sure again in this chapter. Um, you know, giving advice. You know, kind of being a counselor. Uh, she's yeah, and and she's right. You're right. I, I was making a joke about her hating everything, but you know, her her, <laughs> her optimism is tempered, and that's 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 what the situation calls for. I was just trying to have a little fun. No fun on this podcast, sir. No, my bad. You can stop now. Um, I what did you think of? I thought it was interesting to compare leadership styles, at least in the midst of battle. Here, you've got Tywin, who I don't know if we mentioned during the last chapter, but he hung back. He did not participate in the fighting. He commanded the reserve from a high vantage point where he could kind of examine how the battle was going. Whereas Rob is very much a lead from the front Jamie. type of guy. Um, I'm actually thinking of Rob here, oh. but Jamie's the same way. Oh. I think they're both kind of lead from the front uh, type commanders who are going to go down and, and get in the thick of things. Um, is one better? Is is one, uh, I don't know, what do you think? Or is it just two different styles that maybe suit different personalities? Well, I, I was going to say uh, sitting back and commanding from the hillside wouldn't work in this case for Rob. Uh, he can't see a thing. So, uh, in well, he case, could definitely just send guys in and say, "Get it done." 
Yeah, I just mean there's no there's no advantage to him sitting back other other than safety. Other than sparing his life. Yeah. Right. Whereas mm-hmm. for Tywin, actually sitting on top of the hill and being able to see the field, there's a tremendous advantage in that. Right? Yes. Yeah, there's certainly a difference in the scope of this battle compared to Tywin's, sure. But I agree there's a different there's a different uh, feel about these two commanders as well. It's not just situation based. Um yeah, I I don't think Tywin swung a sword in a while. Yeah. And to his credit, he's he's still around. He's still tie winning. So <laughs> last word of the day. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't repeat that jingle now if I had to, so don't ask. I'll isolate it when I'm editing and I'll <laughs> we'll yeah. keep it forever and ever and ever. Yeah. <laughs> uh the song of my heart. I just wanted to say real quick, the whispering wood has to be somebody's porn name somewhere. And if it isn't, I hope it becomes one. Did you just call it Dibs? Yeah, Dibs. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Whatever. Okay, to rein us back in before we move on. Uh, one more thing then. So, potential scenarios for Cersei now that Rob has Jamie, and vice versa. Um,. Is this good or bad for Eddard? Good. Uh, a real, a real uh, pawn, a real chess piece. Sorry to 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 bargain with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I the only thing, the only way it could be bad for Eddard is if somebody loses their head. Not not literally, but uh, figuratively. Cersei or Joff gets pissed and just takes it out on him or something, beats him or I don't know. Uh, it could be physically bad for him in the sense that somebody could get angry and like whip him or something. But I, I don't, I, yeah. Yeah. I, t- I totally imagine Cersei going down to like the black cells and just slapping Eddard around. Just, just kick him in the balls or something. Yeah. Just, like, just to do it. Yeah. You know, just to do it. Yeah. Um, they've certainly put themselves in a good situation. The whole reason Rob is going South is to get dad back, right. To get the family back together. And they certainly seem like they're in a better situation than they were before. Even with Tyrion, they're in a much better situation. Yeah, I don't know why so. it's not a done deal. <clears throat> Forget River Run. Send a raven that says, hey, we just beat you in the field. We're in a good position. Trade. We'll go back home. Leave River Run alone. Let's be done with it. Mm-hmm. Why doesn't that happen? Let's do that right now. Somebody write the letter. Oof. Do you think they feel like they're in too deep now? And Maybe. that it's I don't know. deal with the Lannisters or go home or not or or be dealt with. Well, the, the, I, sur- I, I may have oversold their, their military position. They've won one battle. Uh-huh. They lost one battle. Uh, River Runner is still besieged, you know, and, and Catelyn certainly has a high interest in seeing that ended. So they're not in that great of a military position, really. So right. I, think, I think probably uh, the Lannisters would laugh at them. But short of having Tywin as their captive, they've got probably the the best captive they could possibly have. Absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. Yep. All right. All right. Uh, Scad, the last Danny chapter. Oh man. Silver hair and purple eyes, always on the go. Kicking with the sun and stars, call him Cal Drogo. She knows just where she gotta go and won't be tarrying. Look how Westerosi comes the nearest Targaryen. So, when we last left Danny, uh, three chapters ago, 
Drogo had just been sewn up by Mary Mazdur, and Danny had recruited Mary Mazdur to be her sidekick during birthing. And uh, what we see now is Drogo in rough, rough shape. He is sitting in his saddle, but barely, looking straight ahead, hardly holding on to the reins. He's surrounded by flies that he normally crushes with brutality in his fist. Um, and it is revealed that Drogo has not been following Miri Mazdur's advice for how to take care of the wound. Uh, she instructed him to leave the bandage on for a period of, I believe it was 10 days, uh, without touching it, and also not to drink uh, any um, milk of the poppy or uh, any sort of liquor to kind of dull his senses. He's been, he's, A, took the bandage off, and B, been drinking. Uh, they've replaced the... Uh, the bandage that she did with their more traditional methods that they're comfortable with. If you go back to my homeopathy uh, kind of comparison. So Danny demands a halt to the riding after Drogo falls from his horse. He slumps from his saddle, falls crashing to the ground, and does not immediately get back up and, and remount his horse. He is in rough shape as indicated. Uh, they make camp and bring Drogo inside a tent as his blood riders go to find Miri to see if she can, uh, she can help him again. Uh, Danny has uh, her handmaidens help bathe him in cool water, hoping that will help. He's burning up. Then Jorah appears, inspects the wound, and he tells Khaleesi that he does not believe Drogo will live. He tries to convince her that they have to get out of Dodge now. Without Drogo, she has no swear power in the Kalasar, and that she and Rago, in her belly, are in danger. But she won't leave him. She won't leave Drogo, uh, and... Miri shows up with Drogo's blood riders. They see he's in a t the, ster the terrible state that he's in. They confirm <laughs> Jorah's warning <laughs> that they think that this is not not good for Drogo. He's not going to make it. Miri also indicates nothing can help this guy. And she's angered that he has not followed her instructions, that he's now beyond her help. Danny begs, though, says, there's got to be something you can do. Please help me out. Miri relents, and she says, Blood magic can save him, but death is cleaner. She also indicates to Danny that only life can pay for death, though she assures that Danny that she does not mean her life. She does not mean Danny's life. Drogo's horse is brought in. Um, its blood is needed uh, to do the blood magic. They slit its throat, and blood splatters everywhere, including in the tub where Drogo's resting. Miri kicks everybody out of the tent and says the dead will dance this night. Uh, even Danny is kicked out. As she sings, the Dalthraki gather outside the tent disapprovingly. Um, the blood riders of Drogo battle uh, against Danny's faithful. Um, Jorah ends up killing one of one of the blood riders, uh, and the other blood riders are stopped by her her cause. And uh, Danny, in the middle of it, slumps over and is is in pain. Something's happening with the baby. She doesn't know what, obviously. She she mutters, it's too high, the cost is too high. And as the battle ends, her Kalasar disperses. Some of them go back to their tents, some of them get on horses and ride off, but it doesn't look good for the Kalasar in general. It, there's blood running down her legs, she's barely conscious, the people around her, her handmaidens and Kaz, decide to take her in to get help from Miri, despite the fact that no one is supposed to go in the tent. Uh, and she's saying, no, no, anybody but her, don't take me in there. But they take her in anyway. And that's how the chapter ends. Intense. Just snowballing out of control. Out yes. of control. It's 
everything falls apart in just a matter of a few pages. It's crazy. It is. It's crazy how quickly Caldrogo loses power. I mean, oh yeah, yes. Well, it's, no, I, I didn't cover it very well in the chapter. Apparently, I need to work on my chapter summaries. But it's intimated that as soon as he fell from the saddle and everyone saw it, his power was gone. Um, well, that's like we talked about before. The yes. reason he was the call is because he was the strongest of them all. And that's what they respected him for. Once he wasn't, there were plenty of uh, Dothraki lining up to take his spot. That's right. Yeah. And it's just, uh, I don't know, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll worship at the throne of Gurm again. Just, uh, just incredible writing uh, to take what everyone assumes is a successful battle and just a minor injury uh, in the previous chapter and take it to these lengths. Uh, within five pages of basically Danny's whole world is crumbled. Yep. And mm-hmm. it went from great, we have slaves to sell, we'll get ships, we'll go to Westeros, to I have nothing. Even even my baby is in jeopardy. Yeah. The stallion that mounts the world is uh, doesn't look like it's going to be mounting anything at all. I mean, it, I, don't, I haven't done much research on this, but I don't think blood coming out <laughs> before the baby is a good sign. Certainly. No. But yeah, it's interesting because it was prophesized and we uh we do know that the um oh what's her faces? Dosh Colleen. The Dosh Colleen uh are always right. Yeah. So <laughs> they've got um, a perfect the, track record. What happened here was you know, yeah, like was the, the magic or, or the influence of the Lamen that powerful? It's, it's just interesting to contemplate. Yeah, you don't know whether has magic undone the prophecy. Miri Mazdur's chanting did that have the effect? Was it an accumu- accumulation of the hard life that that the Dothraki lead, riding horses all day when they're pregnant and doing all these things that have led to, to this problem? Is it you know something more mysterious than that? Are the Dosh Colleen really just guessing and don't have any powers at all? Um, there's ding, a great ding, ding. line from Wedding Crashers, uh, the movie where. Uh, one of the characters utters the wrong name in bed to somebody that he doesn't care about, and the girl just lies there and says, would you say you're completely full of shit or just 50%? <laughs> and he says, I hope just 50%, but I don't know. Would you say you're completely full of shit or just 50%? I hope just 50 but who knows? <laughs> and it, it's With the Dosh Colleen, it's like, are they just are they just playing at this, or do they actually have some power? I I don't know. Yeah, we don't really know what their win-loss record is. Yeah, so uh, I guess I would say we should probably wait to find out what happens next because we can guesstimate until the day is long. Like, what was what was the the life cost for saving Drogo? Yes, mm-hmm. and yeah. does it actually work? Yeah. Um, I would I would assume maybe it's Rago, but. It could have been the horse. Yeah. It could have been... All those gosh. men that died outside in the yeah. fighting. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's entirely too big. Drogo's vague, blood but, riders. And I, and I realize time is of the essence, but when somebody says that, <laughs> there's a blood price, and the only question you ask is, is it me? Doesn't that seem a little... <laughs> it's a little short-sighted. <laughs> there's, there's a short story uh, that was written, I think, in the 70s by a guy named Richard Matheson, called Button Button, and they've made, uh, I think, uh, was it Twilight? What was that? 
that science fiction show. They've they've done TV episodes, and there was a movie a few years ago, go I think called The Box with Cameron Diaz and and James Marsden. But uh, the short story is basically you're presented with a box that has a button on it, and you're told if you press the button, somebody you don't know will die, but you'll get a million dollars. When the story was written, I think it was fifty thousand. With inflation, it would have been a lot of money back then. But uh, they're basically saying you don't know them. And it probably won't impact your life, <laughs> basically. If you push this button, we'll give you money and someone will die somewhere. And it's the same kind of thing. It's like, there's going to be a blood cost. Ah, just do it. It's not me. Well, yeah. So I, my, my vote is we wait to talk about the repercussions of this. Yeah. Because I like to see what happens. Yeah. yeah. And we've got a Danny chapter coming up next episode. So We do. All right. Uh, so, so the Blood Riders, I think that's kind of an interesting facet of the Dothraki culture uh, in a culture that's bereft I think of loyalty the blood riders are incredibly loyal and in fact once a call dies if I'm reading this correctly they commit some sort of suicide as well uh, they say that they join him um, so that's shows further evidence as to why his blood riders were so pissed off that Drogo was dying <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> they knew that their end was coming too. <laughs> yeah, they go on. They go on a a, a journey back to Vaistothrak to deliver his body, basically. And then, yeah, they they have some sort of suicide pact, apparently. Yeah, yeah. But I found that very interesting. I'm and interested it... too in in the loyalty of Danny's guys. Mm-hmm. What is their What is their deal? Yeah. I don't know if it's if it's the same severity, but. I don't know but they interesting. seem loyal to her, right? Everything's interesting how her, loyal they stay, they stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas guys are leaving right and left, even with Drogo on his deathbed, um, and essentially gone. It, it seems like uh, they still stay loyal to Danny, even facing up against um, Drogo's more powerful blood riders. It's... Well, I wonder if Danny's up for grabs now by another call as a. No. Tried to tested Khaleesi, and so if her if her cause stays with her, then they would just transfer over to. You know, we aren't we aren't told us. whether that's how the culture works or not. It might be. I know, but I, I'm just wondering if that is the case. Yeah, it might be. I mean, all, all we've ever been told is that when her time as Khaleesi is done, she goes to join the Dash Khaleen. But maybe that's not always how it works. Well, and who knows that it? Maybe what Brooks getting at is. What if Drogo lives, but he's at this point where he can't he can't hold on to Danny because of the no. state he's in? So is someone free then to go and sweep her up to take? Um, yeah. Even Drogo says that it's part of the Dothraki culture in the previous chapter to take what they can take. Yeah. And so if she's unprotected by her call, uh, her son and stars, could someone sweep in and grab her? I see. Drogo lives. They kill him and take his place. Mm-hmm. But the, we do know when she does. When, well. but when, but when a call dies, that she does go to join the Dosh Colleen, yeah. right? That's been made clear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So sad, sad chapter for Danny. Very yeah. sad. Um, are we ready for a little Davos after dark? I am. Okay. So thanks everyone for joining us tonight. We're now moving on to the spoilerific portion of the episode. Uh, for next week, get uh, get a read in. We have four chapters: Arya five, Bran seven, Sansa six, and Danny nine. 
uh, only four chapters rather than our usual five because we are nearing the end of the book. There's only two more episodes for Game of Thrones. Woo! So, uh, and then yeah, we've got to decide sure. if we're going to do the next book or not. <sighs> yeah, Who are we sure kidding? Everyone's on the edge of their <laughs> uh, spoiler, we're doing it. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to devour a cock as quickly as I we can. just want to get into a cock. <laughs> yep. Uh, a cock being an acronym for a clash of kings, A C O K, for yeah. all you innocents out there. Yeah. What? All right, time for Davos After Dark. Davos After Dark. All right, yeah. Should we talk about this Danny stuff right away? Should we talk about John? Should we talk about Tyrion? Oh my god! I kind of you know next very next Danny chapter we're gonna get pretty a lot of our questions answered i kind of feel like maybe we should hold off on the danny until next week uh next episode unless someone really feels like they have something to say um yeah so we get introduced to some pretty key characters in this episode podrick Payne, um our little uh, squire and shay the betrayer yeah so interesting watching them right now and they're like almost infancy as characters yeah. how 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 unmanipulative they are at the point in time shay's interesting uh, in her betrayal specifically um shay, shay and podrick actually kind of almost polar opposites uh, of uh, of their their people they're both close to Tyrion, um and their support of him you know kind of in the end varies greatly right yeah and the irony being that Tyrion is so attracted to Shay right now because she's clever and quick and and sassy yeah. and is almost like like annoyed with Podrick <laughs> because he won't speak up. Yeah, it's like this little useless quiet shit that I have to put up with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I yeah. so I don't remember how spelled out it is what Shay does uh, to Tyrion. I mean, I know she testifies against him, right? And then of yeah, course, yeah, and sleeps course, with his father. Yeah, and then That's of course sleeps with his father, but. But I wonder how much, a, a, we should talk about what that means about Tywin, but uh, <laughs> what does, uh, how much of a promise is she breaking? Because what he tells her is, as long as I'm able to keep you, that's the, the arrangement. Well, he's in prison. He's no longer, he's screwed. He's no longer able to take care of her, right? Yeah, I couldn't speak uh, really expertly about it until I reread those chapters, but I feel like they developed a more uh, sincere relationship. But that's what she's paid to do. It's like yeah. uh, it's, you guys know the uh, the story of the uh, the scorpion and the frog. Well, or, the, the yeah, scorpion the frog. wants the frog to take him across the river, and the frog is like, "No way, man." You're going to, like, sting me. <laughs> I'm not doing that. And the scorpion's like, no, no, no. It'll be cool. It'll be fine. And eventually the frog takes him across the river, and at the end, the scorpion stabs him in the back. He's like, you should have known. That's my nature. Shay is being paid to be your companion. You shouldn't expect anything more than what you're paying her for. Yeah. No? No, you shouldn't. And um, you got to look at this from Shay's point of view, too. She might have felt like everything was falling apart, and at one point just wanted to save her own skin. Uh... Yeah, that's exactly what if, I'm saying. Yeah, so, and I think it's a storm of swords when all this goes down. Yeah, it is, because that's when Tywin dies. Um, it was Cersei, if I 
remember deals with Shay saying that in exchange for her like testimony against Tyrion, um, Cersei offered to give her like uh, a knight to be married to and like a a nice place to live and and everything. Basically, offered her a a life um, if and she would she testify against Tyrion instead. Yeah, <laughs> which that how about how hypocritical is that? It totally is. Yeah. Tywin telling Tyrion about how he disapproves of the whores and that whole lifestyle, and then here he is. Mm-hmm. Ugh. And I, if I remember correctly, those details aren't made clear as to who initiated that. I kind of imagine it was Tywin, but uh, yeah, yeah, we don't really find out how that whole thing went down. Yeah. Yep. Those two protests too much. You want to talk about the Amon stuff? Uh, lead the way. I- yeah, well, I want to. Again, I'm just like, oh, not deep enough into it. Yeah. Well, specifically just the speech Amon gives about, he just hammers home, with the, I think is the beginning of that speech he's giving John, about how the Night's Watch has always maintained itself away from the politics of the world. Mm-hmm. We are isolated from this. It's the one thing that keeps us focused on what we are is that we don't get involved. Regardless of what happens, we stay away. And mm-hmm. at the end of A Dance with Dragons, John's doing exactly the opposite, right? He is, but I think he's just trying to think outside the box, right? And and try to find a way to, to actually help the Night's Watch. Because uh... he sees he sees this as a, a no-win situation with with the others and everything that's coming from beyond the wall. He feels like the only way he can properly perform his duties as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, there's my duties for the episode, um, <laughs> is uh, is by stocking the wall with Baratheon forces and reinforcement and Stannis' guys and everything. He needs their help. Um, I imagine you're also referring to taking in the wildlings and showing them compassion. I'm referring to even later than that, right before he gets stabbed, when he says... We're going to go invade Winterfell. I see. Like, what the hell, man? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, come on. That's mm-hmm. that's clearly involving yourself. You're not even at the wall anymore. Right. And and what was his reasoning for doing that? I need a reminder, probably. And that's where we back ourselves into a corner sometimes. But, yeah, I, I think, I mean, partially it's, uh, you know, go go save the family place, right? I thought it was because they were holding Arya there, who was actually Jane Poole. Yeah, right. That's part of it. It's part of it. Go save, go save the family. Right. the The way that I always took it was he needs to take care of the stuff that's going on behind him, um, in terms of south of him, in order to take care of what's north of him. Uh, Why? But I, I'm sure, I'm sure, and I, I'm agreeing with you as well, Scott. That deep down inside, there's also that. You know, this is my home. This is my family. This is Winterfell. So, the only thing I can think of, and it goes back to what you were saying about needing Stannis Baratheon's men on the wall, is he thinks if if they lose the battle, he won't have those men anymore. Right. And so by going, he's ensuring maybe that they'll stay. But I don't know that that's true. If Stannis wins at Winterfell, he's just going to keep going south and gathering men and trying to take the kingdom back over. I don't think he's going to go back to the wall for the whole. Uh, maybe he would. I don't know. I just it's it's clearly different than what Amon's talking about about taking no part in the the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. It's, it's to me it's a bridge too far. Yeah. Well, to the rest of the Night's Watch, well, to many of them, it, it was a bridge too far too. Yeah. 
they got all stabby. stabby. Would you have Would you have been there stabbing him? Well, I'm not really a very violent person. I'd have probably missed or something, but you know, yeah, I think I would have agreed with them if if I were just a, a your regular old black brother. Yeah, I think I would have agreed with them or disagreed with John. Yep. Um, uh, oh, I remember now. The whole reason he decides to go south is because he gets that letter from uh, Ramsey Bolton. Yeah. Saying that um, they'd taken Winterfell and everything. Yep. And uh, John says, like, he's going to go and, like, no one has to come with him. But, you know, if they will, they should kind of. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I remember now. Yeah, it was more It was more that I think I think it was more not that they'd taken Winterfell because they were already in Winterfell. But that they they had taken Stannis or defeated him in battle or something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Stannis had been defeated. Mance uh, Raider had been captured, I think. And it says that John, as commander of the Night's Watch, needs to come and swear fealty to uh, the Boltons. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Which is weird. Why? Why does the Night's Watch swear fealty to anybody? <laughs> they're, you know yeah. what I mean? Like they're. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's it's the Boltons we're talking about here. Yeah, they're crazy. <laughs> All right, uh, great Davos After Dark. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us tonight. This is Brooks signing off, saying, uh, "Yeah, don't make any deals that uh, you're not prepared to pay for." And this is Matt reminding you that life is tough, but it's a lot tougher if you're stupid. <laughs> and this is Scad. Quoting Amon, we are only human, and the gods have fashioned us for love. 